Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. Now, as you know, we are in the eighth chapter of Romans. Every uh, decade or so, 
I feel like I need to go back to Romans chapter 8 and make sure that the latest version of Grace Community Church is fully aware of all the blessed realities that are in this chapter. And we're just getting started in the 8th chapter of Romans. Let me read for you the opening nine verses. That is uh, where we'll be looking this morning. We'll not cover all of it, but you need to have it all in mind. Romans 8, beginning at verse 1 through verse 9. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Just to begin, you will notice, again, a reference in verse 3 to what the law could not do. What the law could not do, God did. So that, verse 4, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This causes us then to think initially as we look at this passage about the role of the law of God. The law of God, the holy law of God, that which is a perfect reflection of His holy nature, has come in several stages into human experience. First of all, before the fall. Before the fall and the perfection of the Garden of Eden, there was no sin. Adam was a pure reflection of the image of God, and so was Eve. There was no need for a written law. There was no need for a revealed law. Because the law of God was written in the heart of Adam and Eve. Adam imitated God naturally. Adam did God's will and only God's will. Adam obeyed God's law and only God's law. God's will and God's law was the essential nature of his being because he was made in the image of God. His thinking was godly thinking and his behavior was godly behavior. God's will ruled his mind and so it ruled his behavior. Then came the fall. And after the fall, man's heart was dramatically changed. It was darkened by evil. And now, 
Only sin was natural. He did not obey God's law. He did not think about God's law because he had a fallen, sinful nature bent on disobedience. So God began to write His law. From heaven He revealed His law and eventually pulled it all together in Exodus and laid it all out in summary fashion in the Ten Commandments. And God wrote His law not on the heart, but on stone. And it was not positive. It was not a positive force because the law had no power in the sinner's life. It had no force on fallen humans. In fact, it was just a lot of terrifying threats. The law of God was full of judgments for disobedient thinking and disobedient behavior. And what dominated the heart of all humanity after the fall was sin. Sin was now natural. Sin dominated every heart. And no matter what God wished and what God willed and no matter what God demanded or commanded, obedience to God's law was completely impossible to humanity. That's what it says in verse 8. No one can please God who's in the flesh. The law in stone revealed the law of God, but all it did was reveal something impossible for men to keep. They had no will to keep it. They had no power to keep it. So the law in stone just crushed the sinner with guilt and judgment, the threat of divine wrath. The law, as a revelation of God's will had no power to bring about fellowship with God. The holy law of God by itself could provide no fellowship with God because no one could keep that law, nor did they desire to. So that form of law couldn't help at all the condition of man. In fact, there's a sense in which the Ten Commandments on stone were as collapsible as the tabernacle. So what was its purpose? Its purpose was to define sin and render to humanity the recognition that they were sinners. We find that in the sixth and seventh chapters of Romans. In Galatians, we also find in chapter 3 that it was intended to be the tutor that led people to Christ. Because if the law does nothing but damn you and condemn you, then in desperation you cry out for a Redeemer, someone to rescue you from the curse of the law. So the law gave the knowledge of sin. The law demonstrated the inability of the sinner. And the law caused the sinner to cry out for a Redeemer. So the first time the law came, it was written in Adam's heart, and then it was in stone. The third time the law came in a unique way, 
was in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him, the holy law of God was made visible in a human life. Divine, yes, but also truly human. The law was written on His heart. Not in innocence as with Adam, but in perfection, eternal perfection. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In contrast to those in the flesh who cannot please God, Jesus pleased God in every sense because the law of God was written in His heart. It was true to His own nature. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, says Hebrews 7, 26. He was actually a far better example of the holy law of God than the law written in stone or even the law written on parchments. Because here you saw the full-orbed, visible demonstration of holiness, perfect obedience to the law of God. He is therefore a clearer, more understandable revelation of the law of God and therefore the will of God and the character of God. But, as the law written in stone could not help anyone, so the law, written in the heart of the Son of God and lived out in perfection, could not help anyone either. In fact, His perfect life is as useless to save as is the law written in stone. Why? Because you cannot keep the law written in stone, but you certainly cannot live the holy life that the Son of God lived. In fact, His example of the law is more depressing, more disturbing. You hear people say from time to time, unwitting people say, we, we need to live like Jesus. Sure. In absolute, holy, divine perfection, I don't think so. We cannot keep the law written in stone. We certainly can't keep the law written in the heart of Jesus and demonstrated in His holy perfection. He is a higher standard than the written law. And therefore, He is more disturbing and He is more intimidating. The law that was written had been adjusted for the Jews, and Jesus said to them, you have heard it said unto you, and quoted the law as they had interpreted it, and then He would say, but I say unto you, but I say unto you, but I say unto you. He was far more disturbing than the written law. As the living law, He was so disturbing that they killed Him. They killed Him. But He was the perfection of the law lived in all its fullness. There's a fourth way in which the law comes, and that's in our text. When the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets a sinner free from the law of sin and death, through the sacrifice and offering of Christ, the one who receives that salvation, according to verse 4, 
is able to fulfill the requirement of the law. Verse 4 is a powerfully defining statement. So that. In other words, salvation so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not just by us as if some external behavior, but in us. Why? Because we have been made new creations. Go back to Jeremiah 31, where we are first introduced to the new covenant and the definitive character of that new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. Verse 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. That was the old covenant, the law. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's coming a new covenant, and in the new covenant, God writes the law on the heart. The law was written on the heart of Adam. The law was written on the heart of Christ. Adam in innocence. Christ in absolute divine perfection. And now again, the law is written on the heart of those who come under New covenant power and transformation. Ezekiel also expresses the same marvelous reality in Ezekiel chapter, well, it's actually several places, but we'll look at chapter 36 of Ezekiel as he speaks of the new covenant in the same or similar way. Chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." When a person comes under new covenant power, they receive a new heart, a new spirit. They walk in obedience to the will of God and are careful to observe His ordinances. That is a statement of fact. That is a statement of fact. Look back at verse 4. The Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death through the sacrifice of Christ so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is now a fact. That is a fact. If you go back to chapter 6, verse 20, you see it stated in a different way. You were slaves of sin, and you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin 
and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. You were a slave of sin. You were freed from that. You became a slave of righteousness. You are now sanctified and headed for glory. These are statements of fact. In 1 John chapter 2, just to add some scripture that will enrich your understanding of this, chapter 2, verse 20, true believers have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. So, if you're a true believer, you've been redeemed, reconciled to God, regenerated. You have been given by God an anointing that gives you knowledge. What is that? I have not written to you, verse 21, because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. If you are a true believer, you know the difference between lies and truth. You know the truth of God. You have been delivered, as Paul says in Romans, to that form of teaching, that schema of teaching that accords with the will of God and righteousness. Down in verse 27, he says, As for you, the anointing which you receive from Him, that is from Christ, abides in you. Who is that then? The anointing is the Holy Spirit. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. If you are a true believer, you have a new heart, a new disposition, a new mind. Everything about you is new. And the Spirit of God has taken up residency in you and the Spirit of God teaches you all things so that you know the truth and you can see the difference between truth and error. In the words of Paul in chapter 7, verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Down deep in my heart, my new nature, my new creation loves the law of God, joyfully affirms the law of God. So the question then is, now that I have been transformed, now that I have been justified and sanctified, the requirement of the law is being fulfilled in my life because I now do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That's a fact. You might be saying, well, um, am I going to make it? Am I going to be able to live the law I love? Am I going to be able to do that? The Lord designed the table that we're going to come to a little bit later this morning as a point for us to examine our hearts and confess any sin before we partake of this so we don't bring down divine discipline on our heads. So we know about the spiritual battle. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Will I be able to live the law I love? Will I be able to do what I want? Because, Paul says, Verse 23 of chapter 7, I see a different principle in the members of my body 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members, wretched man that I am. I, I have a corpse tied to me, the body of death. Will I make it? Will I be able to live the law I love? Well, yes, you will, because that's your new nature. That's more true to who you are than the way you used to live. Loving the law of God is the truest aspect of your new nature. That's natural for you, to love God, to love His Word, to love His law, to desire to obey. That's the truest expression of who you are in Christ. And the good word from heaven is this. You will be able to live the law you love. The good word from heaven is that you will never be condemned. And that's how chapter 8 begins. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the Spirit has set them free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit of life has given them life. And with that new life comes the fulfillment of the law of God. You have been born of the Spirit so that you fulfill the law of God. Verse 4 then, look at it, so that the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us from the heart. Salvation is not only righteousness imputed, it is righteousness imparted. Jesus Christ has become to you Righteousness, justification, and sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.30. The requirement of God's holy law is fulfilled in you. It was fulfilled in Adam in innocence. It was fulfilled in Christ in perfection. It is fulfilled in us in imperfection. It's not all we are, but it's the truest of who we are. Salvation is a real transformation. We now walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Walk has to do with daily conduct. We live in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. There is no condemnation. That is really good news. We cannot ever be taken out of this condition, this eternal condition, of sanctification and put back under condemnation because Christ has paid in full the penalty for all our sins already. And when you think about the wrath of God as described in chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, it's a terrifying, terrifying wrath. This is a comforting word. If you're in Christ, you will never be condemned. Jonathan Edwards said, the wrath of God upon the wicked is as intense as His love upon the saints. So we pass out of that intensity of wrath into the intensity of His love forever. So the truth of the great declaration that opens this chapter is so incomprehensible that Paul states throughout the rest of the chapter how it can be true. How can this be true? How can this be true that we will never be condemned when we struggle still with sin as we saw in chapter 7. How can it be true? Because we are defined as condemned in chapters 1 to 3, 
we are shown that Christ has basically achieved our no-condemnation status in chapters 3 to 7, and now in chapter 8 we find that the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us. Never will we be condemned. Never. Because the Holy Spirit does all these things for us. He gives us life. He frees us from sin and death. He enables us to fulfill the law. He changes our nature. He raises us to immortality. He empowers us for victory over temptation. He confirms our adoption. He guarantees our glory. He aids our prayers. He conforms us to Christ. He secures our everlasting glory. This whole chapter explains how the Spirit of God brings those who have been justified and sanctified to glory. Now, last time we talked about the first thing that He does. He is the Spirit of life. He gives us life, frees us from sin and death. But let's look at that second one in verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Listen to this. Saving grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. Saving grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. This is not incidental. God wants a people who obey Him, who honor Him, who bring Him glory by fulfilling His law. Saving grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. That great statement I borrowed from Augustine. Saving grace was given that the law might be fulfilled in your life, in mine here, and one day in perfection in glory. God is ultimately honored when He is obeyed. And you have been saved so as to fulfill His law for His glory. All things are for Him as well as through Him and by Him. David Brainerd wrote that the law of God is nothing but a transcript of His holy character. And when we emulate that holy character, we give Him glory. When a soul is regenerated, the Spirit will produce in that soul then the fulfillment of the law of God to the glory of God. F.F. Bruce wrote this in a summary paragraph that I think is helpful. Christian holiness is not a matter of painstaking conformity to the individual precepts of an external law code. It is rather a question of the Holy Spirit's producing His fruit in the life, reproducing those graces which were seen in perfection in the life of Christ. The law prescribed a life of holiness, but it was powerless to produce such a life because of the inadequacy of the human material that it had to work with. But what the law was powerless to do has been done by God. Now that God's own Son, sent to earth in the likeness of sinful flesh, has given up His life as a sin offering on His people's behalf, the death sentence has been passed on indwelling sin. It found no foothold in the life of Jesus. It was effectively overcome in His death. And the fruits of that victory are now made good to all who are in Him. So that the law then required a way of life, a way of conformity to the will of God that is now realized in the believer's life through the power of the Holy Spirit. A poet put it this way, To run and work, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly 
then gives me wings. As our Lord, by the Holy Spirit, fulfilled all righteousness, so we, by the Holy Spirit, were saved unto good works. Ephesians 2.10, which God had ordained that we would do. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 says it this way, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify a people for Himself, for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. We were saved in order to fulfill the law of God. That's what God intends us to do. That's what we do in this world. And that's how we let the light of the Gospel shine. Others see those good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So we move from a condition of not having the power to keep the law which condemned us to having the power to keep the law and never be condemned. How is this possible? The answer is in the same text. Because the Holy Spirit changes our nature. Go back to verse 4. We do not walk according to the flesh. That is not the pattern of our daily lives. That is not the normal disposition of our minds and our behavior. We do not walk according to the flesh. The flesh means all that is corrupt and sinful, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, does not subject itself to the law of God, it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. What has happened to us? We used to be in the flesh, now we're in the Spirit. We used to mind the things of the flesh, now we mind the things of the Spirit. We used to walk in the flesh, now we walk in the Spirit. Everything has changed. Our minds have changed. Our behaviors have changed. Our affections have changed. Because our nature has changed. Once we were according to the flesh, verse 4, but now we are according to the Spirit. Once, because we were according to the flesh, we set our minds on the things of the flesh. But now, because we are according to the Spirit, verse 5, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. God never divides people by culture. He doesn't divide people by education, economics, race, sex. God divides people two ways, according to the flesh, according to the Spirit. Those are the two categories of humankind. God only recognizes the difference between those who are according to the flesh and those who are according to the Spirit. Those according to the flesh are headed toward eternal wrath. Those who are according to the Spirit are headed to eternal glory. What we're talking about here is the dominating influence. The dominating influence of unconverted people is the flesh. It is dominated. It's, it's their nature. 
It's how they think, it's how they act, and it's why they die. But believers have their nature changed so that they are according to the Spirit. Therefore, they think on the things of the Spirit, they act on the things of the Spirit, and the end is life and peace. That is the pathology of human hearts. And back to verse 5 for a moment. You can see the flow linking verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, it was walk in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. In verse 5, now we've gone to the mind, so we've moved from behavior back to thinking. The reason people walk that way is because they think that way. Behavior is stressed in verse 4, and now the thought stressed in verse 5 is that that's because they think that way. They walk in the flesh behavior because they mind the things of the flesh thinking because they are according to the flesh nature. On the other hand, believers walk in the Spirit because they mind the things of the Spirit because they are according to the Spirit. Your nature defines your thinking. Your thinking defines your behavior. This is the flow of Paul's thoughts. The ability to fulfill God's law comes from proper thinking, which comes from a new nature regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That is a basic axiom, a fact. They that are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. That is how it is. If you are without the Holy Spirit, you function totally in the flesh. That's how you think and that's how you act because that's your nature. You are after the flesh. You are in the flesh, as it says down in verse 8. Then that's corrupted and leads to death. Notice the phrase in verse 5, set their minds. This basically is a word phreneo. The noun form is friend. Um, it doesn't so much mean mind as it means disposition. It is a term used to describe the seat of all mental faculties and affections. All mental activity, including emotion, including will. The problem is the whole mind of, of an unregenerate person is basically corrupted by the flesh. It is not really the specific word for mind. That's the word noose. You see that in 1 Corinthians 2.16 where it says we have the mind of Christ. This is the word for disposition. This is the word for dominating, controlling influence. Unbelievers have an internal, dominating, controlling, fleshly power that defines how they think and that defines how they act. And by the way, it is not a product of education. It is not a product of bad parenting and it can't be changed. It's who they are. The bent of unconverted people is toward the flesh. That's all they know. They are the children of Satan, John 8:44. He is a liar and a killer. They are bent in that same 
direction. They are hateful toward God. Their affections are from the flesh. Their confidence in the is in the flesh. They do deeds of the flesh. They operate on the desires of the flesh. They trust the flesh. They worship the God of the flesh. That's why John says they love the world and the love of the Father is not in them. In 2 Peter 2.9, Peter says they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. Philippians 3.19 describes them this way, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That's the pathology of a non-believer. Fleshly corruption, fleshly thinking, fleshly desires, fleshly emotions, fleshly attractions, fleshly affections, fleshly behavior leads to death. Like James 1 says, when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. But on the other hand, those who are of the Spirit, back to verse 5, mind the things of the Spirit. If you're a new creation, your life has a new bent. It has a new disposition. It has a new predominating influence. You are empowered by a new heart, a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. Your deepest longing is to demonstrate your love to God by obeying His Word. If you love Me, you keep My commandments, right? You have a completely new disposition. The disposition of the redeemed is to seek the things of the Spirit because we have the mind of the Spirit, because we have a new nature created by the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. The disposition which controls you is who you are. Sometimes those in the flesh can do something superficially good, but it doesn't please God because it's not for His glory. And certainly sometimes those of us who are in the Spirit do things that basically are a result of the temptation of the flesh. For the unbeliever, he cannot please God. For the believer, we can be displeasing to God, but the bent of our life is to love Him and keep His law. It's the dominating influence. That's why John in 1 John lays out this same statement over and over again. If you're a true believer, you confess your sins. If you're a true believer, you love. If you're a true believer, you obey. There's no such thing as a person who is a believer, who has received salvation, who is not walking in some measure in the Spirit. That's a fact. We're not walking always as we should, and we're basically enjoined to walk more faithfully in Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit and you won't fill the lust of the flesh. They're still there, and that's why Paul talks about the wretchedness of the battle. But the reality is that you're going to be known, discernibly known, 
by the new nature manifesting itself in your thinking and revealing itself in your behavior. So, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. So what are you looking for? Look all the way down to the disposition. What's your disposition? How do you feel toward God? Do you love God? Do you love His Word? Do you love His church? Do you love His people? Do you love righteousness? Do you love obedience? Do you love the holy things? Even though you stumble and fall, are those the things that are the purest expression of your inward nature? Then you are literally in the Spirit. And then look at the second level. What do you think about? What occupies your mind and your thoughts? Is it the desire to show love to the Lord, to think on things that are holy and righteous and good and noble? And then look at your deeds. That's the third test. Is the disposition of your life, the bent of your life, the direction of your life, the dominating force of your life going toward the path of righteousness with the same joy that Paul said he had back in chapter 7, verse 22? That's the test. You don't start with your behavior. You start with your desires, your longings. You know you're a true believer if you love what God loves and if you love God and you love whom God loves and you love His law even though you don't keep it as you should, which is your great grief, that's an indication of the truest expression of your nature when you are dissatisfied and grieved over your own disobedience. If you're a true believer, you are living according to the Spirit, minding the things of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. It's not everything it should be, but it is the disposition of your life. And you can say with Paul, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I walk in the Spirit because I mind the things of the Spirit. That's my disposition because I have a new heart and the Spirit lives within me. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to Use website at gty.org. And for details about the Masters University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just a holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. 
Of course, this lily didn't forget it was supposed to be evolving. The lily kind was created by God at the beginning. Evolution's just a story. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter in Northern Kentucky when you go to AnswersRadio.com and discover answers to your questions by visiting AnswersRadio.com. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Air of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Now, where is the evidence? 
This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's Word. If evolution really happened, we'd expect to see transitional forms and massive change in the fossil record. But what we find are a lot of extinct creatures and a lot of creatures that look just like their modern counterparts. Take feather stars, for example. These are feathery-looking creatures in our oceans. They're also found in Cretaceous rocks, supposedly around 150 million years old. But the fossils look exactly like feather stars living today. No evolution has taken place. The fossil record isn't a history of millions of years of evolution. It's a testament to the global flood of Noah's day just thousands of years ago. View a complete transcript of this program or share it with others. When you visit us at AnswersRadio.com, you'll be strengthened and encouraged at AnswersRadio.com.
living fossil. This is Ken Ham, encouraging all churches to start their thinking with the truth of God's Word. All this week, we're looking at creatures that simply forgot to evolve. Oh, what do I mean? Well, we find many different creatures living today that look exactly like their counterparts in the fossil record. Even after the supposed millions of years, these creatures never evolved. Take one genus of paper wasps. Now, fossils of this wasp are found in rocks believed to be millions of years old. And yet the fossil looks like it could have been buried yesterday. It's identical to living paper wasps. So did these wasps forget to evolve? Of course not. Each of the kinds was created by God at the very beginning. And the fossils? Well, they were buried during Noah's flood just a few thousand years ago. There's so much more to discover about fossils, creation, Noah's flood, and more at AnswersRadio.com. Find resources to equip you with answers when you visit AnswersRadio.com. Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest group of Christ. Put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose, partly to fetch hats from the furnace. To Jesus' extravagant service, immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent, and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior, the greater ambient. Came a man, came as a lamb, and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross, he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted, just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts easily posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority, so we both in a He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer, no god is realer, yeah. We can take any time in the scripture, put the gate is a prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night, and it's bright in the might, and the diamond in the mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the law, that he found, though. He was tamed and floss all around, but remained for the manger, the cross, or the clown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Fight for the rope, but dope, and then. All to the eyes of the S to the E to the end, that's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean the most rebellious. I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born. I'm a bond servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout. I was bought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth sinking. We are clinging to the promises of God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven known earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly perfect. Everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son, preeminent the name, par excellence, prenom, phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see, the father of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's part of we, a pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me. The father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey. From sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't Acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your 
detriment Study the development from Old to New Testament You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age It's relevant, crisis on its center stage Forget religious sentiments that center on man But something less is what you're settling He is the most excellent, exercising benevolence And blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated That severed the relations between man and his maker And placed Christ on his costly cross And compensated his life, death and resurrection Emancipated and gave us freedom from it all Freedom from the effects of the fall Freedom from Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden And from the law So the saints stand and applaud His grace and glorious cause With hands raised, praising His name Singing glory to God <laughs> A not-so-regular day of fishing. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to the authority of God's Word. Imagine this. You're a fisherman just hauling in the day's catch, and you see a weird-looking bluish fish and just shrug it off. There's lots of weird fish out there after all. You put it out for sale in a fish market, and suddenly you're being told you found a fish that went extinct 70 million years ago. That's the true story of the discovery of a fish called the coelacanth. Well, all except the 70 million years part. Now, this fish was nearly identical to the fossils. It hadn't evolved in millions of years. Of course, that's because the coelacanth kind was created by God. And the fossil? Well, it was formed just a few thousand years ago during Noah's flood. Discover more about creation, evolution, science, and the Bible at AnswersRadio.com. And listen to this program again or view a complete transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
a death march. This is Ken Ham, whose ministry has produced the family-friendly Answers Bible curriculum. In Germany, researchers uncovered a fossil of the marks made by a crawling horseshoe crab. And at the end of the path, you saw the crab itself. Now, the only way to make sense of this fossil is to start with God's word. Preserving fossil tracks and animals requires rapid burial. Noah's flood would have provided the perfect conditions for this kind of burial. But the horseshoe crab is unique in another way. Go to the Atlantic coast and you may see a live one. And it will look almost identical to fossil crabs, even though they're thought to be hundreds of millions of years old. The horseshoe crab's just another example of a lack of evolution. And that's because God created the animal kind. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com and also come to the Creation Museum and see this remarkable Death March fossil of a crab. Go to AnswersRadio.com.
Testament Christian pray an Old Testament imprecatory psalm. You've stumbled over these. Littered throughout the psalm, the psalmist petitioning God, crush my enemy, or he's asking God to make his enemy fall. Why? Because his enemy is blaspheming God. What do we do with psalms that indicate we want God to commit violence against our enemy. I think we need to remember the context. Typically in an imprecatory psalm, you see a progression. You see the psalmist seeing the danger, trying to avert the danger. Stop the enemy. They get closer and closer. Please don't crush the heads of our babies. And yet they come, and he knows what's going to happen to the women and children. Then he petitions God Do what you must to put an end to the violence that they are about to inflict on my loved ones. I've got a question for you. Wouldn't you do the same if your loved ones were in danger of being violated, abused, and having their skulls crushed? Nevertheless, we need to deal with imprecatory psalms carefully. So let's look at two verses. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, our first response to our persecutors is to pray for them, not against them. And yet we do see in Revelation a bit of an imprecatory prayer. Revelation 6, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. For the word of God and for the witness they borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? In the book of Revelation, we have a bit of an imprecatory prayer balanced with Jesus' admonition to pray for our enemies, and yet it does appear that when things get really, really wicked and dangerous, they can be wisely appropriated. Here's what a dead guy said. When praying against the persons of those that are open enemies to God and his church, it's safest to pray indefinitely and in general. Let them be confounded that hate your church because we know not who of them are implacable and who not and therefore cannot pray absolutely and preemptorily against particular persons. So how might you apply all of this? Can you pray that God will do to that false teacher what needs to be done to get him to repent or to remove him from the pulpit? Yes. Do you want to ask God to crush his head? No. The implications of the imprecatory psalms, pretty big. Number one, wisdom would tell us we don't pray these prayers publicly. The world probably wouldn't understand. Two, have you prayed for the person's salvation first? Number three, remembering that imprecatory prayers are biblical, it should remind us of God's hatred for sin. Big question, should we pray imprecatory psalms? A sort of short answer. The imprecatory psalms make up a small amount of the book of psalms and were reserved for very specific, dire circumstances and should be prayed by the New Testament saint very cautiously, if at 
Would you please like, subscribe, or share this video so other people can enjoy this professional Christian content. That was from Wretched's YouTube page. Uh, Wretched, it's the YouTube channel. Uh, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D. And you can find them also on wretched.org as they got a radio show, podcast, and and TV show. Check it out, wretched.org, wretched.org. And now, let's see. This is from the Bean Waters. Has spread to countries across the world. This new coronavirus was initially traced to live animals. The Chinese confirming that it is now spreading from human to human. How's a thousand more evacuees if the outbreak gets worse? Urging Americans to avoid all non-essential journeys to China. At least 106 people have died and more than 4,500 have been infected. The U.S. is closing the door to slow the spread of novel coronavirus. And new cases have been confirmed around the world, including Germany and Japan. The American public should not be fearful about this, but you really need to take it very seriously. Hundreds dead, more than 14,000 infected worldwide. Health officials are investigating more than 100 possible cases in the U.S. We know that overnight, the confirmed cases of coronavirus in China doubled. Yeah, right on the one hand, he doesn't want people to panic. People shouldn't panic is what we're hearing. No. But remember, that the virus is so small, it can go through, the, go through the mess. It's not perfect. In other words, we are not just talking about mainland visitors to Hong Kong. China is urging its citizens not to travel abroad. Several countries, including France, Japan, South Korea, and Morocco, have said they will evacuate their citizens from disease-stricken areas. The deadly coronavirus is becoming more infectious. But, uh, you can have the virus maybe for two weeks or so without showing any symptoms at all. We know thousands of others are infected. This is the center of Wuhan. It's a city that's home to 11 million people. Not that you would know it. Many of the streets are deserted. People are being told they can't leave the city. Russia, too, has closed a large part of its border with China. South Korea, France, which believes it has up to 1,000 nationals in Wuhan, is looking at uh, trying to get those out as well. Efforts by the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, continue. India as well. A respiratory virus is what infectious disease experts fear the most. The death toll from the coronavirus is increasing. In China, more than 30 million people in 13 Chinese cities are now under lockdown. He's more concerned for people outside Wuhan, including in the U.S. Tonight, a rapidly evolving public health emergency. The Department of Defense approving future quarantine centers at military bases across the country. Have you heard of the coronavirus? Yes. Are you worried about it? Lately, yes. Are you concerned about it? Uh, A little bit, yeah. Does it worry you? Yes, it does. Why? Because we have multiple cases here in the United States already. What about you? Have you heard about it? Are you concerned about it? I am. Is that why you're wearing that mask? Currently, yes. Do you know what the symptoms are? From what I understand, the symptoms are as as simple as the uh, the common flu. Are you fearful of it? Um, I'm kind of more paranoid now. Does it scare you? Um, yes, it does. I mean, just seeing like the fatality rate slowly climb. And there's no symptoms for two weeks. Um, not from what I understand. Yeah, that's kind of scary, isn't it? Yes. Good morning. 
are aware of when people are coughing and sneezing around me. Open the window a little more. Have you heard of the coronavirus? Yeah. Scary? Nope. And you're scared. Because it's not you. Yes. Sure. You can't detect the symptoms. Someone can be carrying it and give it to you. You don't manifest symptoms for two weeks. Do you believe in God's existence? Or, yeah. Why would he give diseases like the corona disease? Why is there such a thing as disease? Well, in my head, back of my head, those been there since that one office episode. There's just too many people on this planet. So God gave disease to kill them off? Yeah, pretty. The reason we have disease, pain, suffering, and death is because we live in a fallen creation. Would you take a vaccine if there was one? Yeah. And what about you? Yes, I would. And why would you take a vaccine? You're letting a stranger plunge a needle into your skin and pour in some sort of liquid. It's worth it. It's worth it, yeah. And you'll take it too? Yeah, well. Without hesitation? No, because if it helps me, then yeah, I would do it. Do you realize you've got a terminal disease? No. Yeah, you're going to die. So is your family. So are your neighbors. You know what causes death according to the Bible? Uh, sin. Sin? Sin? Yeah. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The reason you'll die is because God's giving you the death sentence. Did you know that? Mm, yeah. It's like a judge in a court of law giving a criminal the death sentence for murdering three young ladies. He says, you've earned this. This is your wages. We owe it to you. And God says we're so sinful in his eyes, he's given us the death sentence. So why are you an atheist? By choice. Yeah, but why? Um, if you're taking it this route, sir, I don't feel comfortable taking it any further. Can I just share one thought with you? I'll ask you one question about it. As an atheist, do you believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything? Possible. You know what the Bible says? What does the Bible say? It says we live in a fallen creation. That's why we have disease and pain and suffering and death and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes. You know, God's angry at humanity because of our sins. If you've heard the that your family had died of the corona disease and your neighbors, would you seek a vaccination? Yes, I would. Yes. Very quickly, wouldn't you? Very, very quickly, yes. That's because you're fearful of dying. Well, you're going to die anyway, and the Bible says the reason you're going to die is because of sin. The wages of sin is death. God's yes. given you the death sentence, but you're not aware of the symptoms. So I'm going to point out the symptoms to you so you can see how serious this is. Okay. So I'd like to use the moral law, the Ten Commandments, as a needle to make the way for the saving power of the gospel. It's going to be painful, that needle of the law. Do you think you're a good person? Yes, I think I'm a good person. How many lies have you told in your life? I can't even, I can't even count that. So what do you call someone who's told countless lies? It's a liar, I guess. So what are you? I mean, we're all liars, right? Have you ever stolen something? Yes, I have. And what about you? Yeah. What do you call someone who steals things? Stealing. Thief. Thief, yeah. so What are you? Not you're a lying thief. What about you, Ben? Are you a lying thief? Yes, I am. But painful, isn't it? Yeah. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yeah. Would you use your mother's name as a cuss word? Never. Why not? I don't know. It's just respect her. Yes. And yet you don't respect God, the one who gave you life. You took His holy name and used it as a four-letter filth word to express disgust, which is called blasphemy. So serious in the Old Testament, it was punishable by death. I appreciate your patience with me, guys. This needle is sharp. Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? No. You're homosexual? No. Looked at pornography? No, no. Oh, yeah, he did? Yeah, yeah. That's lust. Have you looked at women with lust? No. Homosexual? No. You 
you looked at pornography. Yeah. Have you had sex before marriage? Yes. So, Brandon, I'm not judging you, but you've just told me you're a liar, a blasphemer, a fornicator, and an adulterer at heart. You're probably a thief because you told me you're a liar, so I can't trust you when you say you've never <laughs> stolen something from someone. So if God judges you by the Ten Commandments on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty. I guess guilty. So they're the symptoms. You've seen your danger. You're going to end up in hell if you die in your sins. And that brings us to the vaccination. You know what happens with the vaccination? You know what they put in your body? They put, um, like, the smaller piece of the... The virus. Yeah, the virus, yes. Well, God vaccinates you against death because Jesus suffered death in our place. And when you're born again, death passes over you because of what Jesus did on the cross when you appropriate a suffering death. I've used the needle of the law to make way for the gospel. Christ died for our sins. It's as simple as this. You and I broke the law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus paid the fine. That's why he said it is finished just before he died. In other words, the debt has been paid. If you're in court and someone pays you fine, a judge can let you go and do that which is legal and right and just. You can see. Kevin, Ben, so stack of speeding fines here. This is deadly serious, but someone's paid him. They're free to go. And he can do that which is legal and right and just. Even though you're guilty, he can let you walk. And God can let us walk. He can forgive our sins in an instant. He can take the death sentence off us Save us from death and hell in a moment of time because Christ paid the fine in his life's blood and justice can be done and mercy extended all because of the death and resurrection of the Savior. And all you have to do to find everlasting life is repent and trust in Jesus. And the minute you do that, you've got God's promise. He'll grant you everlasting life as a free gift. And the Bible says it's impossible for God to lie. You can totally trust him. If I were you, I'd get somewhere quiet and say, Lord, I've been trusting in my church and confession and repentance Today I trust Jesus as my Savior and my sin bearer alone. And the minute you do that, you'll be born again. In fact, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you're not going to enter heaven, so you better make sure you're born again. It's in John chapter 3. Okay? Are you going to think seriously about this? Yeah. You know how you take a vaccine because you believed you're in danger? Yeah. Notice it's the belief that caused you to take the vaccine. Faith is very powerful. If you believe you're in danger, heading for hell... That'll open the way to the gospel. The Bible says repent and believe the gospel. So you must repent and trust in Christ. Do you know what repentance is? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I'm not sure. It's where you confess and forsake your sins. You don't say, I'm a Christian, but you continue to lie and steal and fornicate. That's playing the hypocrite. You've got to be genuine. You've got to be sincere for it to be real. And then you trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. You, you took your time to explain to me. So, yeah, I'll, I'll seriously consider it, yeah. If you're going to die at midnight tonight, you'd hang on to every word that I'm saying. If you seriously believed death was going to come come to you at midnight and seize upon you, you'd hang on to every word and say, please explain this to me. I want to know, how can I be sure of everlasting life? How can I know my sins are forgiven? Please tell me. I want you to have that sense of urgency because you don't know when you're going to die. It could be before tonight. So what do you think about it with that sense of urgency? Yes. And examine my motive. I love you. I care about you. I don't want you to end up in hell. I want to see you in heaven. Do you have a Bible at home? Yeah, I do, actually. There's one at home, yes. If you're going to jump out of a plane, Kevin, 10,000 feet, why would you put on a parachute? To save my life. Yeah, and it's fear that will make you put it on. You don't want to hit the ground at 120 miles an hour on your face. You'd rather land on your feet at 5 miles an hour, so fear is a legitimate reason to put on that parachute. It's your friend, not your enemy. What I've tried to do with you two, because I love you, I care about you, is hang you out eternity by your ankles just for a couple of minutes to show you it's a 
fearful thing to die in your sins. God manifests all the secret sins of your heart, your sexual imaginations, and gives you justice. You're in huge trouble. And so let that fear be your friend, not your enemy, and drive you to the cross where you can receive forgiveness of sins and God's gift of everlasting life. Is this making sense? Yes. Making sense to you? Yes. So if you were to die today, and God gave you justice, you'd end up in hell. There are two things you must do to be saved. You must repent and trust in Jesus. When are you going to do that? That means today, then. Yeah. Today? Yeah. Serious? Yeah. What about you, Ben? I say today, yeah. Today? Yes. Can I pray with you guys? Sure. Yeah. Father, I thank you for these two young men that have been open and honest today. Passed from death to life because of your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Can I give you a booklet called Save Yourself Some Pain? It's got Christian principles in it that will help you grow. Do you have a Bible at home? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. This is the Evidence Bible, everything you ever want to know about evangelism. It's over 1,800 pages, filled to overflowing with apologetical arguments, everything you ever want to know about reaching the lost. It's available at livingwaters.com, amazon.com, or at your Christian bookstore. Hey. 
emerging like a moldy piece of bread. We act as if the holy word of God is all but dead. All we need to know is right there on the pages. Why are we obsessed with who the guy on stage is? Bye for now. The 